Welcome to the Good Chemistry Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Brian Roth. Brian is a distinguished professor of pharmacology at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill School of Medicine and an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Brian has been running his lab and doing cutting-edge research for around 30 years now, and his papers have been cited tens of thousands of times. He has been studying the molecular mechanisms of how drugs affect the brain for most of his career, and is also an avid practitioner of Zen meditation, which he's been doing daily for many years now. Brian and I discussed a range of topics related to his scientific work, including receptors in the brain and how they work, how psychedelics and other drugs interact with those receptors. We talked about the massive research project that his lab is leading around the study of psychedelics and the development of new drugs to treat psychiatric disease. And Brian also talked about his Zen meditation practice and the types of awareness that that practice can reveal. If you find the content in this episode interesting or helpful, please do consider liking, sharing, subscribing, downloading, all that stuff. I really do appreciate it. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Brian Roth. Professor Brian Roth, thanks for joining me. Greetings. How are you today? I'm good. And where where are you actually? Where do you where's home base for you? So I'm in uh, at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill School of Medicine in the Department of Pharmacology. Interesting. And what would you say your overarching research interest is for your lab? So um, I would say ultimately we want to understand how psychoactive drugs work at the most fundamental level, and then to use that information to design uh, safer and more effective medications, mainly for psychiatric indications. Hmm. Since my, my background is I'm, I'm a psychiatrist among other things. Gotcha. So you're actually a psychiatrist, you're an MD, and you're also a PhD. Right. Yeah. My PhD and, in biochemistry. Okay. And do you do any clinical work or is it all a lab research focus? No, I don't. I don't see patients anymore. Um, I did for many, many years, but I haven't for probably 15 years now. Okay. How long have you been running your lab? Since 1991. So that would be almost 30 years, right? Oh, wow. Nine years. Yeah. <laughs> a few years. A few years. Yeah. And you're kind of known as the GPCR guy. So I thought maybe we would start with an overview of some basic biology to maybe give people some foundational knowledge that'll probably inform the rest of the discussion. So can you just talk a little bit about what, what are receptors, very high level, and what do they do for cells? So... Um... I think everybody knows what drugs are, right? Yeah, let's assume they do. Okay, so drugs are typically, not always, they're typically small, uh, relatively small chemical compounds. Um, for those people that have a scientific background, 
Typically, these are compounds that have molecular weights less than 3,000, or I'm sorry, less than 350 Dalton. So these are these are relatively small compounds. And um, when you when you take a drug, let's take uh, um, I don't know. Since I guess since we're going to talk about psychedelics, let's take LSD as an example. Okay. So when people take LSD, so this is a drug, it's a small compound, uh, to mediate its effects in, in the body, it has to first uh, interact with uh, a protein that's called a receptor. And uh, receptors are proteins uh, that are on, that are in cells, uh, the proteins that the cells that we're going to talk about are cells in the brain that uh, are important for all brain activities. These are called neurons. And receptors are just uh, basically proteins that sit on the surface of the cell. They have openings in them for drugs to come in, drugs and uh, neurotransmitters. And when the when a drug like LSD or when the natural neurotransmitter, which would be serotonin, uh, gets in, finds its way inside the receptor, there's typically a sort of a pocket in the, in the protein. It, uh, it stabilizes a, a particular state of the receptor, which is active. And then uh, once this active state has been uh, achieve then the receptor and the drug complex then uh, turn on a bunch of biochemical reactions inside the cell. And uh, G protein coupled receptors are just one sort of class of receptors uh, that are in the body. They're the largest uh, class of receptors um, that are encoded by the human genome. There are about 800 of eight between eight and 900 of them. Um, they're responsible from everything from uh, vision, uh, your sense of smell, your sense of taste, um, virtually all of your brain functions are mediated in part by interaction with of neurotransmitters with G protein coupled receptors, sensations of pain and pleasure, um, and so on. So these are these are really, really important uh, family of, of uh, proteins in the body. So these GPCRs, they're a certain type of receptor, right? and they do lots of stuff. Are they, they come in many forms, and are they right. all throughout the brain? Are they in certain cells, or are yeah, they every, everywhere? Every cell in the body has, um, we'll just call them GPCRs. Um, they're technically G protein coupled receptors, um, but every cell in the body has them. And every cell in the body expresses, you know, typically a hundred or so of them. Hmm. Uh, so they're, they're everywhere. Um, and they're important for every, literally, literally every, um, everything that goes on in your body is, is regulated in, to some degree or another by um, GPCR. So they're, they're really, really important. And are these receptors, are they something that 
medications that a doctor would prescribe are often interacting with? Yeah, about about 30% or a third of um, prescribed medications uh, have their main action by interacting with GPCRs. This includes most psychiatric medications. Um, and then uh, a large percentage of of medications of other medic, the other two thirds um, interact with GPCRs sort of secondarily. So side effects mm-hmm. um, of medications may be uh, may be mediated uh, by sort of chance interaction with GPCRs. So the GPCRs may not be the main target for the drug, but the drug interacts with GPCRs, and that that can be important for serious side effects. Wow! So. So they're really important. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So every single cell in the entire body has some kind of GPCR, probably many kinds. So they come in many different flavors. So if we stick with the brain, we're talking about neurons, brain cells inside of our heads. There are all kinds of receptors that respond to many different neurotransmitters, things like serotonin and other things. We're probably going to end up talking about serotonin a lot. So what is the psychedelic receptor or the one that's commonly associated with the effects of psychedelics. Yeah. So that's, um, that's a receptor near and dear to my heart that I've been studying since 1983. (laughs) Okay. So probably I've been studying it for more years than many of the people that will be listening to this have been alive. (laughs) Um, so it's, it's a receptor called the five HT two a, we can just call it the two a receptor. Um, and uh, that's, you know, there's the best evidence is that uh, psychedelic drugs exert their, their psychedelic effects through activating that particular receptor. I think that's fairly well established and probably, you know, the vast majority of, of, of experts would agree that the, the 2A receptor is the target of psychedelic drugs. So the classical psychedelics, as I understand it, are pretty much defined by their ability to bind to this receptor. So something like LSD, something like psilocybin, something like to activate it, it. something like DMT as well. And yet they can have very different effects. Some of them last for many hours. Some of them last for just a few minutes. If this is the quote unquote psychedelic receptor, what's accounting for the differences in the effects of different psychedelic drugs? Yeah, so that's, um, I would say that's something that's really unclear. So um, let's just take LSD and psilocybin as, as two examples. So psilocybin is, uh, the drug psilocybin is actually inactive um, and in your body. So when people take psilocybin, uh, it's, uh, it's metabolically transformed into a compound called psilocin. Hmm. So psilocybin itself is inactive. Um, It has to be metabolically transformed to psilocin. Technically what happens is there's a phosphate group that's removed uh, and it becomes a free hydroxyl. And then it's, then it's able to interact with, uh, with really many serotonin receptors. Um, And it turns out that uh, the drugs like LSD, DMT, psilocin, I'll, I'll call it psilocybin, but just for the science nerds that that may be listening to this, when I say psilocybin, just 
just bear with me and 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 repeat to yourself psilocin. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And this is this is the active compound in magic mushrooms. This is the active compound in magic mushrooms, right? Um so you know what we have found over the years is is these compounds actually interact with dozens of different receptors. Um and so they have this this very complex pharmacology. Uh, but when you uh, you know there are now really well controlled human trials where humans have been given uh, uh, drugs. The, the drug they they're typically given is a drug called catanserin, which is it's not entirely specific for the five for the two A receptor, but it's reasonably selective for the two A receptor. So when humans are given that that drug and it it basically blocks the activity of that drug. Uh, and then when they're given, uh, you know, a hefty dose of LSD or psilocybin, they don't have a psychedelic experience at all. Hmm. <laughs> so that's, um, that's probably the most compelling evidence we have that the effects are mediated. The psychedelic effects are mediated by, by the five, the two a receptor. We don't have data like that for a drug like DMT. Hmm. Um, and I suspect, uh, at some time in the future, somebody will, um, you know, do a clinical study and determine if the, you know, if the psychedelic effects of DMT also are blocked by a two A antagonist. Hmm. Would your uh, intuition there be that maybe they're partially blocked, but not completely? So I don't know. Um, we know that in mice for what it's worth, uh, <laughs> You can block the effects of DMT by blocking the 2A receptor. Hmm. Um, we can block many of many of the behavioral effect. You know the the effects that we can measure in a mouse. Mm -hmm. Many of them are blocked by 2A antagonists for you know all of the psychedelics, but not all. So there are there are sort of classical mouse behavioral. Markers of psychedelic drug action that, um, and technically these are things like the head twitch response, nose poking, uh, retrograde walking, disruption of prepulse inhibition. There are, you know, a few of these um, mouse behaviors that uh, are completely blocked when a when mice are given highly highly selective 5-HT2A antagonists, irrespective of what the psychedelic drug is. Mm -hmm. So you can, it could be um, LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, DMT, 5-methoxy-DMT, 25-cyano-NBO, uh, you know, the NBOs. Um, what are those? I don't know what the NBOs are. Those are designer psychedelics. They're apparently fairly popular in Europe. I don't hmm. know if they ever, ever made it on the market here. Um, on the black market here. Um, so, so we have, um, you know, really, really strong, uh, data in, in rodents <laughs> and for all, all psychedelic drugs. And then in humans, we have strong data for two. Um, and we just don't have any data for the rest of them. Now, um, the other thing that's, uh, that is sort of dis that distinguishes drugs like LSD, psilocybin, and DMT. Those are sort of three 
uh, drugs that uh, that in humans, the, the you know, if you if you go to Arrowwood or um, uh, read uh, data from uh, human studies where where these drugs have been given, the effects the effects are quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't know if that's because of the other receptors that these drugs hit or if it's because of something that's called pharmacokinetics. So a drug like LSD actually takes a long time to interact with the receptor. Once it gets on the receptor, it's on there for a long period of time. A drug like uh, psilocybin is sort of intermediate. And a drug like DMT is very rapid. It gets on the receptor very quickly, Mm -hmm. falls off the receptor fast, and it's removed from the body very quickly. And um, uh, typically when people take DMT, uh, they're given very large doses. Uh, and uh, one can imagine that uh, the receptors are fully o- basically fully occupied nearly instantaneously by DMT, whereas where that's, that's never going to happen with a drug like LSD. LSD takes a lo- actually a long time to get on the receptor, and psilocin is sort of uh, intermediate. So hmm. it, could in, it could in part be due to... Um, what we call pharmacokinetic uh, things, or it just could be that a uh, drug like DMT, which is sort of a real outlier, is um, you know has other pharmacology that's important for its action. Um, and and as I said, uh, these drugs interact with dozens of receptors, so it's mm-hmm. it uh, you know it's conceivable that. Uh, that uh, that something else is going on. It's also possible that they interact with the receptor differently. So, um, but we 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 basically need definitive data. We just don't have it. So, gotcha. So some of these drugs are literally getting onto the receptor very slowly. In the case of LSD, and, very slowly, and it takes a long time. So they might get on some receptors, but not all of them. And then they get on some more later. And then by then, maybe some of it's washed out or something. Where something like DMT, it's sort of all hops on all of the receptors it can, and then gets right off. Yeah, and it's removed. Uh, it's removed very quickly from the body as well. Hmm. So it has. Um, it it doesn't. It basically is degraded very quickly. And is that um, because it's very similar in structure to a natural neurotransmitter like serotonin? Yeah. So it's uh, it's broken down by an enzyme called monoamine oxidase. Um, uh, and that's everywhere in the body. It's very high in the liver and in the brain, and 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 basically DMT is 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 gone in you know five minutes basically. Mm-hmm. So, um, but who knows? You know, uh, that's why science. This is why science is fun <laughs> because you can sort of go and go. You know, design these experiments and then see what happens. So it'll be interesting. Somebody will do the experiment at some time uh, in the future, and then we'll know. So how, um, you probably have quite a large lab. What are the major projects or the major questions with respect to psychedelics that your lab is pursuing right now? Um, So we have, uh, we have basically two main uh, questions um, that we're studying. The first is um, so, so just to let your, uh, listeners know, 
I actually have the only grant to study LSD. <laughs> so there's there's one person who has an NIH grant to study LSD, and I'm the only one. In the U.S. or in the world? In the U.S. So the NI, the National Institute of Health only funds, there's, a, there's literally only one grant to study LSD, uh, and I have it. And I think there's only one other grant to study psychedelics, basically, and that's... Hmm. That's by Adam Halberstadt. Um, and, um, you know, for, for the last several decades, there have been very few labs that have studied psychedelics. So my lab has studied it, uh, you know, for many years, but, but mainly on the side because um, I never had funding to study psychedelics. Mm -hmm. It's only in the last... Uh, three or four years that I was able to finally get a grant. Um, and because of this, we, we actually don't know much about how psychedelics uh, mediate their actions uh, in the brain. And uh, so a good chunk of our work is basically trying to understand initially at the most fundamental level, uh, how psychedelic drugs uh, mediate their actions. And um, the idea is that once we can, since, since literally nothing is known about them, <laughs> I mean, literally, um, and the idea that, that I've had uh, is that once we can understand their actions at, at the most fundamental level, which is at the atomic and the molecular level, um, then we can use this as a toehold to basically go out uh, at... Uh, at more um, sort of coarse-grained levels of understanding, so the single synapse, the neuron, and then the brain. Um, and uh, the inspiration for this, this sort of very reductionistic and sort of molecular approach to psychedelic drug action uh, is inspired, you know, I was inspired when I was a, a student by you know, Watson and reading about Watson and Crick, where they, you know, basically solved the structure of DNA. And when they, when they solved the structure, then this basically opened up a universe of, of knowledge. Uh, and, you know, basically everything that we know about, um, about DNA, RNA, you know, molecular biology, uh, springs initially from the discovery of the structure of DNA. So the Moderna vaccine that, and the Pfizer vaccine that everybody is going to, going to take probably soon uh, was, you know, is, is a nucleic acid-based vaccine. It's an mRNA vaccine. And um, the, basically, you can, you can draw a timeline between the development of that, the vaccine and the discovery of the structure of LSD. Okay. Is that, is that clear at all? Mm -hmm. That that's the idea. If, if we can understand initially at, at the most fundamental level, how these drugs mediate their actions, then that will ultimately uh, allow us to deconstruct or reconstruct the entire activity of the drugs all the way up to the, to the level of the human. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. If you understand 
the chemistry and the biochemistry at a basic level. You understand exactly how each of these drugs are sitting in receptors, how they're doing that differently in different spots. That right. sort of unlocks the door to all of the other big questions that one might right. ask. Right, right. So I call this the holy grail of psychedelic drug action. Okay, that's that's the first, that is the, we have to understand that first step. So um, uh, I would say the last uh, nearly 30 years have been devoted of my work in my lab have been devoted on and off to, to ultimately understanding that first step. We, we finally understand it. So, um, a good chunk of my lab is, is, um, is devoted to that. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, we're also, we have, we're sort of heavily invested in, um, uh, using that information to, uh, create new medications. So we're basically jumping from uh, the most fundamental insights directly into medication development. So the idea is now we know how psychedelic drugs interact with the receptor. Can we use that information to design drugs that um, maybe are better than drugs like psilocybin for treating depression, anxiety, you know, and mm -hmm. so on without... Um, perhaps without the psychedelic effects, we'll see. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Possible or not, I don't know, but we have, we're, have, we're actually heavily invested in testing. I would say testing that hypothesis. So the, the idea that a lot of people have right now is for a drug like psilocybin, you know, it's showing promise for treating certain things like depression, say, or end of life yeah. anxiety. But of course you're going to, trip on it. So you're going to administer this to a patient or they have administered this to patients under supervision. It's going to take a number of hours for you to have this experience. And that's obviously very time consuming. And it would be nice in theory, if you could design a drug similar to psilocybin or something that had the therapeutic benefits that, that clinicians want, but doesn't require a six hour hallucinatory experience. So right. You're trying to design drugs that do one thing without the other things. How likely do you think that is? Some people think that we definitely will be able to dissociate those two things. And I know that other people think that the classical psychedelic effects might actually be an integral part of the therapeutic benefits. Do you have a, a perspective on how likely it is that we can dissociate those things? I have no opinion. Gotcha. So it could be anything. Completely agnostic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but we, um, you know, thanks to the, um, DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, um, they've given us a hefty um, a hefty award to to basically test that hypothesis. Hmm. So it's it's a hypothesis, um, and uh, you know we have some you know unpublished data that suggests that you know which is I would say suggestive that that hypothesis could be true, but. You know, ultimately, it's gonna. It's we're never gonna know until we get the right compounds and get them into humans, mm -hmm. and we'll know right away, basically, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah. In the in the very first clinical studies, we'll know if the drugs are psychedelic or not. Um, and yeah, uh, it's one one advantage to humans, I guess, over mice is you can ask them. <laughs> they'll tell you right away. Yes. <laughs> now, I just want to. So I just want to talk a little bit about uh, about psilocybin uh, and its uh, its potential for treating depression and other things. Um, 
and I, I don't know if this is what you wanted me to talk about, but I just want to just want to say a few things to listeners here mm-hmm. about this. So, um, as mentioned, I I spent many many years as a psychiatrist and actually um, helped design and execute clinical trials for for many years when I was at Case Western Reserve, Reserve University, and I've uh, you know consulted with pharmaceutical companies and started companies and so on. So I, I have a lot of experience in this space. And um, when I saw the initial phase two clinical data with psilocybin, I was, my mind was completely blown because the effect size was so huge. And, and describe the effect for us. What exactly did they find? So they found that after a single dose of psilocybin, um, there was a huge, hugely beneficial effect on depression. And these are these were in in patients that were quote unquote treatment resistant. Mm-hmm. Um, so these were people with severe depression, uh, for which standard treatments didn't work. Initially, they were uh, people with uh, cancer uh, who were facing end of life issues um, and had you know anxieties related to this. And um, remarkably, after basically a single dose, now now they they actually gave fairly large doses to these to these uh, individuals mm-hmm. under very carefully controlled conditions. Um, there was this really dramatic, uh, dramatically beneficial effect on depression uh, and anxiety, which was maintained, uh, and and the longest follow up now is six months and. A significant chunk of the patients are still symptom-free after a single dose. So this this is truly remarkable. Um, so, and I was asked to write a little commentary on on that on on at least one of those on two of those studies, which I did. So um, so it was pretty amazing. Now, um, and of course there are anecdotal uh, um, uh, reports as well, but based on uh, based on this really dramatic um, response, the FDA, the US Food and Drug Administration has granted breakthrough status to psilocybin for um, at least two different indications. So this is, this is pretty amazing. And they're both in what are called phase three clinical trials. These, these are what are called registration trials. So these are the studies that have to be done with large numbers of patients to demonstrate the drug is safe and effective before it would be approved for use by the FDA. Uh, and I anticipate that the, you know, my prediction is that it, it will, will again show a, show a big effect. Mm-hmm. So that's all, that's the positive. Now what's the, what's the negative? Well, when you drill down into the, into the clinical trial uh, design, um, which I have done, one of the things that was um, pretty surprising to me is that when they recruited patients for the study, uh, 90% of them were actually ultimately disqualified from entering the study. Mm. And they were disqualified for many, many reasons. Um, one of which was inability to form a, a, a therapeutic, uh, a psychotherapeutic uh, interaction with a therapist. Okay. Meaning they attempted to do therapy and it just wasn't working out. Well, you know, it's not it's not entirely clear what the criteria were, but but that's that's within the that's within the uh, in the papers. The other is if there's a history, a family history of serious mental illness, mm-hmm. 
So if you have a family history of schizophrenia, so I, I have a family history of schizophrenia, um, you're not eligible to take the medication mm-hmm. because there's a concern that in susceptible individuals, psychedelics could induce or exacerbate underlying psychotic conditions. And is that is that a fear where we just want to be conservative in the in case that is true, or is there actually clear evidence that you can have a triggering of a psychotic episode from psychedelics? So, there are no controlled trials. I see. So we don't know. Um, the the other uh, thing was that they excluded individuals that were suicidal. Um, they also excluded individuals that had more than three prior psychedelic experiences, hmm. which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that actually may exclude a lot of potential mm-hmm. um, people that would be enthusiastic about about taking psilocybin. Mm-hmm. I mean, that one's sort of understandable to me because you might think, well, if it's people who are enthusiasts, um, you know, that's just, that's another variable. These people might be more likely to report yeah. and display effects above and beyond what's actually going on. At any rate, 90% were excluded. So it's a question of generalizability. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And, and if you look at other recently approved sort of transformative treatments for depression, um, so there are two of these. One is ketamine mm. and the other is brexanolone. So ketamine um, is approved for treat for for treatment of of depression, typically used for people that are suicidal um, and uh, you know has has sort of a rapid, very rapid uh, antidepressant effect, but it it wanes usually in a couple of weeks. And if you go back to the clinical trial data, about 75% of the patients who were, were, were deemed eligible for the study, I okay? see. which is more, I would say more typical. <laughs> you would exclude a quarter rather than 90%. Rather than 90%. And that's the case for um, the two big trials of psilocybin. So this is, this is not um, just one trial and Brec- the Brexanolone uh, is sort of an interesting uh, comparator as well. And what so is that? What does that it's do? A, um, it's, it's technically what's called a steroid. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's in the same chemical class as cholesterol or, um, you know, anabolic steroids or estrogen, mm-hmm. um, testosterone. Um, and it was approved for treat for postpartum depression. So this is depression that uh, women have after they give birth, which is can be very serious. And it's given um, as an infusion over sixty hours. Okay, so pretty pretty noxious treatment, hmm. a continuous infusion for sixty hours. But it has this remarkable effect, in some ways similar to uh, psilocybin. Um, but uh, less than 50% of the patients in those trials were excluded, okay? So that's a little concerning to me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the downside. Um, and uh, it, it makes me, so the concern I have is that uh, large numbers, so, that, so, you know, as I said, I expect psilocybin, you know, will have a, will have a, have this robust effect in the phase three clinical trials. You know, if I was a betting man, I'd be willing to bet on that. Um, 
on that outcome. Um, but it may come with a lot of strings attached in terms of patient eligibility. And um, so may not be, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, will not be suitable for the general population. So I, I hope we can, we could improve on that in some way. And that's, that's a big, um, sort of a big uh, uh, reason that, that we're spending so much time and effort in, in sort of formally testing this hypothesis that we can, that we can separate those two effects. Um, if we can't, um, then hopefully we can come up with something that has has a little better better safety profile than LSD. There are some some problems, some safety problems with those drugs, which I could go into, um, but um, basically preclude um, sort of microdosing and things like this um, for long. Yeah, I, I do want to get into that because I have heard that for some of these, but I want to ask first, you've been studying psychedelics to some extent for decades, but it's only right. really in the past few years that's become this new sexy area. Right. You've been doing it for a long time. Where, right. where did this interest come from? Was it always there? Yeah. Uh, you know, ever since I was a teen, a teenager. So I grew up in Montana hmm. and, uh, you know, sort of the tail end of the 60s, I was a, a, a little kid, basically. And um, uh, you know, I knew about people who had taken LSD and actually had bad experiences. One, mm -hmm. one person I knew ended up in a, in a psych hospital for months. Um, and, uh, and, as I and as I said, I, there's this family history of schizophrenia um, and when I was, a, when I, you know, literally when I was 13 or 14, I started reading up about these, uh, these things, you know, in Montana, you don't have much to do, <laughs> <laughs> not a lot going on there. Um, but we did have a public library and, um, it, and, uh, you know, I was taking high school chemistry and, uh, so I realized these are drugs, these are drugs. This is a drug that's causing this effect. So drugs like LSD, um, you know, clear to me as a, as you know, a fourteen-year-old is is affecting how people view reality. And on the other hand, there are these these other drugs that uh, people take who have who are psychotic, um, and when they take them, they're not so psychotic. And I just found this really interesting. What the hell is going on here? And um, so I was, I was just, you know, just interested in that. And it wasn't until I was in college, um, there was a, a visiting, uh, basically this professor from Oregon uh, came through one, one week to my, to this, I was going to this small college in Montana. And I think he was probably coming to Montana to, to do, to go fishing or hunting or something like that. But as an excuse, he, he gave a lecture to the biologists and he was a neuroscientist. And 
he showed this diagram of synaptic transmission and he said, and he talked about receptors. And that was the first time I'd ever heard the term receptor in my life. Hmm. And when was this? This was, this would have been in 1973 or 74, maybe 75, somewhere in that, maybe 1975. Okay. Mid 70s, you're learning about receptors for the first time. The very first time I'd ever heard the term receptor. And uh, I just said, wow, that's what I need. That's what I need to find out about is receptors. <laughs> an epiphany. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't quite an epiphany, but it was like, what are receptors? This is really cool. And, uh, you know, there was no research. And I was very interested, you know, I had this interest in drugs that make basically drugs that make people crazy and drugs mm -hmm. that make them sane. Okay. Mm -hmm. I had this, I had this interest in this and I, you know, since I, since I was 14, I, I decided I was going to become basically become a psychiatrist. I didn't, I didn't know how that would ever, ever occur, but uh, that's what, that's what I was going to do. Um, and so I got into medical school and, uh, there was a guy there that studied receptors. And uh, I asked if I could get in his lab and he said, yes. And so I got in, you know, I started basically volunteering in his lab and then, um, you know, got a PhD on opiate receptors, basically. Even though my interest was, you know, basically psychedelics and anti-psychotic drugs, that, that was my interest, mm -hmm. those two things. He didn't study them, so I studied opiate receptors. And then uh, when I finished my uh, PhD, I went to the National Institute of Mental Health to do a postdoc. And that's when I studied, started studying, um, you know, what I study now, basically. Um, the psychedelic receptor. It's also, also the receptor for one of the receptors for eight, what are called atypical antipsychotic drugs. And, um, you know, I must say that, that when I first started studying this receptor, um, I didn't start studying it because it was a receptor for LSD or for antipsychotic drugs. Uh, it was, it was because, um, nobody in the lab was working on it. And the guy I was working for was a really famous neuropharmacologist. And he just said, Brian, you should study this receptor. And was that the Kappa opioid receptor? No, that was the 5-HT2A receptor. Oh, okay. So, Yeah. So I got my PhD on opiate receptors, and when I when I finished my PhD, I vowed never to study opiate receptors ever again in my life. Well, why was that? Because uh, I, well, at the time the field was it was filled it was filled with all these really interesting characters, um, most of whom are dead, sadly dead now, but. You would go to these scientific meetings and everybody would be yelling and arguing with each other. And uh, I just decided I didn't want to be in a field with these crazy people who didn't get along <laughs> with each other. <laughs> okay. So when I, when I went to, NI, to the NIMH, um, here was this serotonin receptor nobody knew anything about, the 5-HT2 or the 2A receptor. and and the guy I was working for said, Brian, you should study this. So I did. And then 
the, then lo and behold, it turns out to be the receptor for LSD. Hmm. <laughs> so why did, why did he think you should study it if that wasn't even known yet? So I don't know if this is going to be in, interesting at all, but it, it was for it was for a crazy reason. Okay. So <laughs> it turns out that serotonin doesn't bind to the to this to the 2A receptor very well. Hmm. It has it ha technically it has what's called low affinity. And there were some unusual things about the way the receptor was regulated, um, which I, I won't go into for, for this audience. It's sort of technical. But um, this guy I was working with, his name is Arminio Costa. He's, he sadly is dead now. But at the time, he was literally the most famous neuropharmacologist in the world. He was a member of the National Academy of Sciences. The lab had 50 postdocs in it. Oh, wow. It, it had two floors at the NIMH. And, um, you know, it was, was an, amazing, an amazing place to work. So he actually thought that there was another neurotransmitter, perhaps a neuropeptide, that bound, that bound to the 5-HT2A receptor, not serotonin, okay? Mm -hmm. And so he said, Brian, I want you to find the peptide that binds to this receptor, okay? And he was a really smart guy. So this is around the time that enkephalins were discovered, you know, the endogenous ligands for the opiate receptor, endorphins, dynorphin for the kappa receptor, um, and so on. So it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, that wild of an idea to suspect that there, you know, this could be another receptor for something else in the brain that we don't, that we don't know. And so I spent a, uh, about a year or a year and a half in the cold room trying to isolate the peptide for this receptor. And, and I went to him and I told him, it's serotonin. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a serotonin receptor. <laughs> and he almost kicked me out of the lab. He was very angry. Um, but so but anyways, you, you, do, you, kind of happened to uh, run into this receptor and then it turns out to be the quote unquote psychedelic receptor. Yeah. And, and I guess the rest is history. Yeah. I just stuck with it. Wow. <laughs> wow. And so did so you always no, no insight, no particular insight on my part. <laughs> <laughs> and so you had, um, you had this interest in psychotics and antipsychotics. You had this interest in receptors and psychedelics. You had this family history in schizophrenia. Did you stay away from ever experimenting yourself with psychedelics for that reason? Yeah. You know, it's, if you have a family history of schizophrenia, it's not a, I don't think anybody would, mm -hmm. would recommend that you take psychedelics. So. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, so what do you make of today? You know, the last, whatever, four five, six years, you now have this renaissance or boom in research on psychedelics. Um, you also have a lot of money going into the private sector for startups. A huge, amount, a huge amount of money going into the private sector. Yes. Yeah. What do you, what do you make of this whole phenomenon? Is it mostly exciting? Are you, is there, are there any cautionary notes you have for people? Are, are things already getting overblown at all? What's your, what's your general sense of, of the research that's going on? 
Um, there isn't. So there, there is, um, you know, I'd say the clinical trial research from the, uh, the UK group and the, um, and the Hopkins group and the, uh, the Volenweider group. So those are sort of the three, the Switzerland group. Mm-hmm. Um, they're doing, you know, pretty good, pretty excellent uh, human, uh, human research. So at Hopkins, that's the people that many listeners may have heard about in the news in the U.S. Right. that are working on psilocybin. And in the right. U.K., is that Compass Pathways? No, it's uh, Cathcart Harris and okay. Um, ah, okay. and Nutt. David so Nutt. Yep. David Nutt. Yeah. Um, and then in, in Switzerland is Franz Volenweider. Of course, Franz, Franz Volenweider, like me, has been studying you know psychedelics for decades. Mm-hmm. For, for decades, he was the only person doing human studies with, uh, with psychedelics. Um, so there are, you know, there are, there is this handful of clinical groups that are doing, you know, really, really excellent, uh, excellent clinical studies. Finally, you know, control, controlled clinical tri- trials, mm-hmm. finally. Um, in terms of basic science, there isn't a lot of really good basic science still. Um, so as I said, I, you know, I literally have the only grant to study psychedelics from a basic perspective. And then there is a, um, this group, um, Adam Halberstadt and, um, Mark Geyer. So Mark, Mark Geyer, um, I don't know if he's semi-retired or, um, if his lab is not entirely active, it, it may still be, but he, you know, he's sort of has studied psychoactive drugs, including psycho psychedelics for, for decades as well. Um, uh, they, they sort of do behavioral pharmacology, excellent behavioral pharmacology. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, that's about it. I mean, there are some other, other people, Charles Nichols does some research, um, sort of on a smaller scale, but, um, it's, there isn't, there isn't a lot of basic research, um, that that's being done. Hmm. Um, there are a number of, um, I guess David Olson does some as well. Um, not, not directly with psychedelics, but, uh, sort of psychedelic inspired research. Um, that was the recent paper about Ibogaine, right? Ibogaine and Ibogaine derivative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, there, you know, and, but there are many, many companies, um, mainly looking at, you know, seems to be mainly psilocybin. Some of them are, have licensed, uh, I think some of David Olson has a company, Charles Nichols has a company. They may have some new chemical matter. Um, but there isn't, you know, there isn't much note about these compounds, these newer, these newer compounds. Um, so we, you know, we have this paradoxical thing that um, venture capitalists and, uh, you know, rich people, sort of rich hippies, uh, are pumping lots of money into into psychedelic space. But there's not a, a firm foundation of science that underlies a lot of what's going on. Hmm. There's a lot of enthusiasm. Um, but, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's fascinating to me. Um, 
you know, we, we don't really know much about how these drugs exert their actions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if I was an investor, I would want, want to know a little bit more about that. Um, mm -hmm. What, um, what do you make of the research? So you, you sort of study things at the basic level, the very small level. So receptors and chemicals and molecules. And then there's people like the group in the UK and elsewhere that are doing fMRI brain imaging studies. Right. There's some EEG work out there looking at the global brain states and patterns right. of brain activity when right. people ingest psilocybin. Yeah. Do you follow that literature closely? And, and what do you think, what are the basic takeaways that we know about so far about how psychedelics are affecting global patterns of brain activity? So um, I think it's mainly phenomenological uh, data right now. Um, I don't, I don't read their, you know, I, I, I must admit, I don't read their papers that closely because I just don't, it's just at too fuzzy of a level for me. Um, we are, you know, um, I have a big lab and so we are actually looking at things at a more integrative level. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so for the, the DARPA grant, we actually have a, a huge behavioral effort, mouse behavioral effort. Um, and we have collaborations with, uh, basically the, the best neuroscientists in the world to look at uh, neuronal firing and things like this. So for the DARPA grant, um, I've been able to bring together a team, which in their, in their respective areas, I think is, is literally world-class. So we have, um, we have one of the world's experts on what's called cryo-electron microscopy, this guy, Yorgos Kiniotis at Stanford, um, uh, the group that's, that's basically the world leading the leading group in the world in sort of computational discovery of, of drugs, which is the Shoiket and Irwin group at UCSF. The, basically the, the world's greatest um, person in terms of understanding the dynamics of receptor activation. This is Ron Drawer at Stanford. Um, the uh, Duke uh, Behavioral Core is is running Duke University Behavioral Core is running all of the all of the behavioral studies at at a level that really no one else um, in the world can do. And then we have a huge medicinal chemistry effort. So we have five full time chemists, um, and we're you know we also have um, basically one of the leading uh, people who does proteomics. Uh, this guy Nevin Krogan. Um, his lab at UCSF is trying to understand um, sort of um, the proteomic networks. We're doing transcriptomics networks. So it's sort of an, um, it's a Manhattan uh, style effort that it's like a Manhattan project for understanding mm -hmm. psychedelic drugs. So. Um, so you've got multiple teams and you guys are looking at psychedelics at multiple levels, meaning you're, you're zooming in very close to look at very zoomed in pictures of things happening so the, synapses. The atomic, the atomic level, yep. the molecular level, the cellular level, the neuronal level, and the behavioral level. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we have a huge effort in making, you know, um, 
engineered mice to <laughs> for for um, various things. Um, and then we were basically combining this with drug discovery. So the goal is basically to um, deliver new medications. Um, so it's unprecedented, basically. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's uh, the grant is twenty seven million dollars. So this is this is like for for this sort of effort, this is this is a huge amount of money. Um, and uh, and on top of that, I have um, you know this uh, this merit grant from uh, National Institute of Drug Abuse, basically to understand at the molecular level what's what's going on with these drugs. So we we have this. Um, we're very fortunate to have this really you know outstanding team of of scientists uh, that can bring sort of world class brains to really a complex complex problem. Uh, which which is unprecedented, I would say, in in the history of of study of of psychedelics. So, our hope is at the end of end of the four to six year period that there you know will not only have new medications, but we'll actually have some knowledge about how these drugs exert their actions in the brain. For, Interesting. For one, finally, basically. So we can probably expect to see uh, a body of work here, multiple papers. Yes. And multiple. is this? papers. Which compounds are you, are you focused just on LSD? Are you doing multiple different studies on different compounds? So um, it's a big project. So we're, we're in the process now. Um, so there, there are 30 investigators working on this. So 30 scientists uh, just on this project. And then with, uh, with my other funding, there are probably another four or five. So maybe 35 people working on this project. And so, um, in terms of the basic biology of psychedelics, we're, um, actually looking at hundreds of known psychedelic drugs. Hmm. And we're in the process of putting together, a basically a paper that will serve as as the database for our understanding of psychedelics. So every psychedelic drug that is known to be psychedelic, we're looking at right now. Um, and uh, at, at many different levels. Mm -hmm. So the receptor pharmacology, the signaling, transcriptomics, proteomics, Got so it. So you're building a database essentially for researchers where every known psychedelic will have a complete or at least a very thorough database of which receptors they bind to, what they do with those receptors, how genes are turned on or turned off because of that. Right. And all of that will be available for researchers to tap into. Yep. It'll wow. be free online. For anyone. For anyone. That's, that's awesome. Yep. And uh, we're also, so that's just a small part of this project, mm -hmm. that's like this this much of that project. Mm -hmm. Okay, the big part of the project is actually to come up with what's called new chemical matter. So what we want to do is we want to come up with completely new structures of compounds that will activate the receptor in specific ways. And so we know that the signaling of these receptors is extraordinarily complex. 
And we're basically dis we're designing and discovering completely new chemical entities that look like nothing that has ever been seen on the planet Earth hmm. um, to activate these receptors in distinct ways. So literally drugs that don't exist on Earth in, in normal biology and therefore drugs that have the potential to activate receptors and have effects that we've never seen before. Right. Right. And uh, of those, we're basically doing chemical optimization to make them have better what are called drug-like properties or medication-like properties. Mm -hmm. And we're optimizing them ultimately to be uh, candidates for testing in humans. And what would, so when you optimize something for candidate to be tested in humans, what exactly does that mean? You're minimizing the risk of side effects and things like that? Oh, it's a huge, it's a huge amount of work. So it's, um, you have to, so there are what are called drug-like properties. So these are things like, uh, can you take the drug by them as a pill form and will it get to the brain? Mm. Okay. So that's one so that process is very complicated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are many things that regulate that process and all of those things need to be optimized and, and characterized. Um, and then you wanna, you wanna make sure that it doesn't have you know, the potential for serious side effects. You wanna mm -hmm. make sure it's specific for the receptor. Um, and uh, you don't want it, you, know, you wouldn't want it to disappear within a minute of entering the bloodstream, right? Mm -hmm. And you probably wouldn't want it to hang around for days. So mm -hmm. you want to optimize that as well. So there, there are just many, many things <laughs> that, that need, to be, um, need to be taken care of. A lot of these can now be predicted with uh, computational tools, uh, but ultimately have to be you know, tested and quantified. So there's, there's a huge science involved in, in this. Uh, but that's that's one of the things. Um, so to give you a sense, um, so we're about six months, six or seven months into the project. Um, and already we've evaluated around 500 novel compounds wow. that have been created just for this project. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we've wow, already... We've already put two of them in mice. <laughs> wow. So it's going to be this, I mean, enormous body of work with this yeah. really rich database that yeah. anyone can tap into. And like not only drugs that we know about, but essentially alien drugs that, that yeah. you've made from scratch. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is cool. Yeah. Yeah. So your tax dollars. <laughs> <laughs> literally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So what is what, what? How does like someone like DARPA decide that this is this is where they want to fund research? Can you give us some insight into how research funding actually works and where they so, where they decide so you, to point you have, things? You would have to talk to them, but um, basically they put out uh, what's called an RFP, recept for uh, request for proposals, and what they wanted was the the title of the thing was biased agonists as rapidly acting neuropsychiatric agents. Sort of a mouthful. Focus Pharma, I think, was the name of it. But the idea was um, basically what I outlined to you um, 
can you come up with a non-psychedelic psychedelic? psychedelic? Mm -hmm. So is it possible to create a drug which is effective like psilocybin, but is not psychedelic? So the idea is, can you come up with a drug that you take one dose and you're, you're cured? Yeah, that would be nice. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> yeah. So DARPA likes, I don't know how they come up with these ideas, but DARPA likes to, um, my understanding, I can't speak for DARPA, but, but from what I understand and talking with other people is they like to pick impossible projects. Hmm. And uh, so it's a moon, it's like the moonshot effort like at Google moonshot. or something. So, yeah. um, they know that you know many of them will fail, but if you know the upside is is huge, high risk, high reward, reward right. yeah. So, the idea is you know, it'd be great if we could you know come up with something where if you're depressed, you take a pill and the next day you're not depressed. Wouldn't that be wonderful, right? Mm -hmm. That would that would transform humanity. So, um that's the task they gave us. Uh, and uh, they gave us a, a certain time schedule. <laughs> what was the time schedule? Yeah, what's their expectation here? Four years. <laughs> Four years. So they Four. so they give you $27 million, but there are strings attached. Oh, yes. <laughs> and so what, what, what do they expect you to have to show for yourself after four years? Is it a certain number of papers? Is it a certain kind of result? They want, a comp they want uh, two compounds basically ready to go. Hmm. What happens, just out of curiosity, what happens if you don't come up with two? Well, so there are milestones that we have to meet along the way. And if we don't meet our milestones. I see. So it's it's phased funding. Yes. Yeah. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, um, it's, there's a very um, high level of uh, supervision. And mm -hmm. oversight. Mm -hmm. um, so we meet um, very frequently with the program managers, and you know, give updates and all this stuff. It's it's nothing for people that have NIH grants. It's nothing like it. The level of oversight and and um, expectation is uh, is extremely high. It's it's more like if you were in a biotech company. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's that sort of pressure. Um, you know, you have a certain timeline, you have things that need to get done. If you don't get those things done, uh, or if it looks like your project is not going to work, they want to find out as soon as possible so they can cut the funding. I see. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty tight, <laughs> it's a pretty tight schedule. It's, it's a very difficult project, but we have an awesome team and we're making great progress. So, um, I think we'll get, I think we'll get to the finish line. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I mean, that's, it sounds like a heroic effort. It's a distributed team. And I mean, I'm really excited to see what comes out of that. I mean, I love the fact that you yeah. guys are going to have this database. I used to work in academia. I now work in the private sector. So uh, I, you know, I can no longer just put all of, all of the data I have access to out into the world. And so I appreciate just hearing that things like that are going to yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, because I've heard this about you. In fact, the first time I heard it about you was, I've never met you for the listeners, so I, I've never talked to Brian before, but I was in the same room as you one time, and it was, I don't know, six or seven years ago when I was a graduate student at Harvard, you gave a talk, and then there's a, you know, there's often a student lunch after a talk, so a scientist will come in, 
to give a talk, present the research. And well, then after I think I talked about the structure of LSD at that talk, right? No, this so was about what? this was about dreads, I think. Oh, dreads. Okay. Okay. Yeah, this is actually my introduction to, to you, to Brian Roth, was when I started graduate school, I started using these things called dreads. Oh, okay. Which, which are tools. They're they're GPCRs, receptors like we were talking about. They've been modified. Right. And you can use a bag of tricks in, in the lab to put these receptors into animals. And it allows you to then activate those receptors, say, and, and manipulate the animal's behavior to see how certain neural circuits are working. So I was right. using dreads to make animals hungry. I was working on oh, AGRP okay. neurons. Okay. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So you can, yeah. So you can um, put these things into animals, make them do something. In this case, eat. And so I learned about Brian Roth. I went to see Brian Roth speak. You talked about dreads, and then in the student lunch afterwards, where there's just sort of a Q and A with the graduate students, you mentioned that you were a Zen meditation practitioner. Right. If memory serves me correct, I think you said that you meditated for something like four hours every morning. Yeah. Yeah. So walk us through that. How <laughs> is, is that your schedule? Is it four hours every day? And yeah, at least four hours a day. Is yeah. that continuous all at once? Um, let me just, before I get into that, let me just say that um, uh, one thing you may not know about dread technology is that I invented it to deconstruct psychedelic drug action. Mm, I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> So that was the reason I invented it, basically. Um, and the idea was we would make, you know, a, a GQ, what we now call the GQ dread. We would put it in the layer five pyramidal neurons, turn it on, and and recapitulate the actions of LSD. So that mm. was that was the idea, basically. Okay, so I think what so what you just said was you were trying to create a receptor such that you could put it into particular neurons in the brain, turn right. it on without a drug, right, and make the animal essentially behave as if it had taken LSD. Right. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. And it turned out just to be this great tool that allows neuroscientists to selectively turn on or turn off neurons in order to figure out how the brain is actually doing what it does. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, thousands of labs around the world use it. It's, 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 it's quite amazing. Um, sadly, my lab <laughs> doesn't use the technology. <laughs> um, but well, anyways. Yeah. Yeah. With that segue, we can we can talk about uh, from dreads to meditation. From dreads to meditation, right? <laughs> so I, I remember hearing that this is several right. years ago, and I was like, "Did he just say four hours a day?" So yeah. Is, yeah, is that all at once, or is it broken up? So I usually get up around three or four in the morning, mm -hmm. and uh, I will. Uh, I have actually a little meditation room uh, that I set up here. And at, at home, and of course, everybody is asleep. My wife is asleep. My dogs are asleep. And I meditate until, um, you know, around eight o'clock, basically. Wow. And then uh, I may meditate in the afternoon or at night. Um, but, you know, that's, that's my typical day. And how long do you sleep each night? I usually go to sleep between eight and nine. So I get plenty of sleep. Okay, so you, it doesn't six, it doesn't affect your sleep drive. Um, well, so I get like uh, I don't know six hours of sleep a night, probably. Um, okay, so that's probably the low end of the normal spectrum. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I get by with a little less sleep probably than the normal person, the quote unquote normal person, mm-hmm. typical person. Yeah, yeah. And um, what what style is there a particular type of meditation you're doing? Yeah, I practice Zen. And what is Zen as opposed to mindfulness meditation or some other form of meditation? Um, so the particular, so there are um, basically three, I, would, I guess you could say three types of Zen, three types of Zen meditation. Um, and I'll just, I'll just discuss all three and then I'll, I'll tell you what I do. So um, sort of the, one standard way of Zen meditation is, is what's called following the breath or counting the breath. Basically, um, when you breathe in, you count one. When you breathe out, you count, you know, you're not doing this when you're talking, but basically in your mind, you're breathing in one and then two, three, four, all the way up to 10, basically. And when you get to 10, you start over again. So that's called counting the breath. And uh, that, that typically is refined to following the breath. So you follow the breath going in and then you follow the breath going out. Or you could just, or it could be, you only count the exhalations. So those are variations. So that basically sort of basic, basic breath practice. So that's, that's a very common type of meditation. It's called breath practice. Um, and typically when people start out, uh, with Zen practicing Zen, they start out with breath practice. Um, and, uh, you can stay with breath practice your entire life. So breath, the breath, you know, following the breath is, is a complete practice of, of meditation. Um, once, once one, gain some, I would say, facility or is acquainted with breath practice for a time uh, so that um, practically you wouldn't, if you were counting your breath, you wouldn't lose the count for 15 minutes or so. So the, the instruction with breath practice is if you forget what number you're on, you start, you go back to one, basically. Mm-hmm. So if you're able to do this for 15 minutes or 30 minutes without sort of mainly without losing the count, then um, if you wish, you can go to another practice. Um, And there are basically two other practices in Zen. Uh, The first is what's called koan practice, K-O-A-N. And the other practice is what's called, uh, they have these Japanese terms, shikantaza. And uh, koan practice is, um, so, so let me back up. So breath practice, you can, you can sort of do on your own. Uh, you could, you could do it on your own without, you know, without a teacher. It's, it's helpful to have a guide, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I've just now taught you the basics of breath practice. You could go home and practice, practice basic Zen meditation with that practice. Um, koan practice or shikantaza, you definitely, it definitely is, helpful to have a teacher. Uh, um, so koan practice is, um, is typically only, uh, started during a, during a Zen retreat of at least typically of seven days. 
So you you wouldn't ordinarily take up koan practice if you weren't if you didn't have. I, w- I won't say if you're not dedicated sufficiently, but if you don't have the time to spend a week meditating, mm-hmm. <laughs> where you're and and in a Zen uh, center, this would be you get up at four a.m. And you go to sleep, you know, lights are, you know, you could, you can go to sleep around 10 p.m. Um, and during that time period from 4 a.m. to 10 p.m., you're meditating most of that time, okay, in a meditation hall with other, with other Zen practitioners. Um, so, so koan practice is um, is focusing your attention on a question. And a typical que- you know a typical question, I think a lot of people have heard of that, of this one, what is the sound of a single hand? or what is the sound of one hand clapping? but but really it's what is the sound of one hand would be a koan. That's a koan. Um, Another koan would be, show me the face uh, before your parents were born. Show me your face before your parents were born. That might be another koan, okay? But typically, the first koan that people work on is is a koan called mu, M-U, or um, some people will say the koan is is the word no, N-O, and it's a very short koan uh, where a student comes to a Zen master and he says, he asks the question, does, does even a dog have Buddha nature? And the Zen teacher says, no. Or mu, mu in Japanese. And that's the koan. And then you focus on that word, mu. Um, and so that's koan practice, and you know it sounds weird, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of strange. Focusing on this word mu, what is this word mu? What does this mean, mu? Um, so it's very helpful to have a teacher <laughs> to at least at least understand what what the practice is. Um, and, and so, so is is there an answer to that, or is it meant to be unresolvable? Uh, so there is a resolution of the koan, and uh, in koan practice, the goal, if you could, if you could say, is a goal, is to um, see things as they are. Uh, at least initially with a sudden insight, uh, what's called Kensho. Um, and in, in common parlance, this would be having an enlightenment experience. Okay. Um, so the goal, the goal of, of koan practice is to have that experience. They, we would say in Zen to have the same experience that the mythical Buddha had, at least to 
a small degree, some tiny degree, to see things as they are, to see into the nature of reality suddenly. Uh, and then the goal of subsequent um, koan work would be to clarify that vision, clarify that understanding so that um, uh, that that understanding is um, permeates your life, basically, so that you are the understanding. Uh, and and that's why it's you know very helpful to have a teacher. It would it's nearly impossible. It's not it's not entirely impossible, but it's nearly impossible to do it without to 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 do that to have that sort of practice without a teacher. Um, for for most people, a teacher is 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 essential. So uh, so you I take it that you did have a teacher at, at least at one point. Well, I have a teacher. Yeah. So I've been, I've been practicing Zen for 30 years with the same teacher. Um, and then the third type of, um, of Zen practice is what's called Shikantaza, which is, um, is probably the most, in, in, in some ways it's the most difficult of all practices or the easiest of all practices. And Shikantaza is, um, you could say, I'll just use some um, sort of jargon here. It's being in what's, it would be non-dual awareness. Mm -hmm. are, you, are you acquainted with the idea of non-dual awareness? I am, but can you, can you describe that? So that would be where there's no sense of a separation. So this, would, this is sort of what people describe it as a peak psychedelic experience, right? Yeah. Non-dual, I and the universe are one, mm -hmm. right? So uh, a Kensho, so Kensho is that, that experience. Mm -hmm. I and the universe are one. Above the heavens and below the heavens, I am the honored one. I walk the universe alone. I am the universe. Okay. That's Kensho. That's also the peak psychedelic experience from what I understand, at least one from what I can read. Um, so Shikantaza is, is that sitting. <laughs> and so <laughs> so, so I, I take it that you've experienced that state, and and if so, is that something that has happened multiple times briefly, or are you able to sit with that type of non-dual awareness for extended periods of time? So, we don't we don't talk about what our own experience is um, in Zen. Um, there's this little, uh, but I can speak about it. Uh, in the third person, um, mm -hmm. I think I think that would be fair. There is this um, there's this funny cartoon I just saw uh, that I sent to a longtime friend of mine, uh, which is sort of a takeoff of Fight Club. So you know the movie Fight Club. Mm -hmm. So it says uh, it's you know um, who is it? Brad Pitt and who is the other guy in Fight Club? Um, um, Edward Norton. Edward Norton. 
you know, are looking at each other and one of them says the first word, word, the first rule of Satori club is we don't talk about Satori. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so, you know, Shikantaza is, is basically a moment to moment practice. So it would be, you know, it would be every moment, every moment of awareness um, is, is remembering or re, um, is recognizing uh, the non-dual nature of reality. So that would be the practice of Shikantaza is instant by instant awareness of the non-dual nature of reality, if that makes any sense at all. Well, I, I think it does, but I, I think it might not to most people. So yeah. why don't we, so in the context of say, uh, like neuroscience speak, right. would it be fair to say something like this, that your Zen practice or certain altered states that you can enter into through meditation or, or from other means? So, we would, so let me just, let me just back up here. So, um, so in Zen, one of the one of the marvelous things about Zen is that um, these are not altered states. So this is the natural state of the mind. This is sort of so Zen is part of Buddhism. I don't want to get too philosophical here, but um, in in most schools of Buddhism. Uh, this is what's referred to as the natural condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so would that so mean it's not, it's not an altered state at all? The mind is there. It's something prior to all of the differentiated forms of awareness that one may have had through conditioning throughout life. It's you would so we would say it's actually always there, but it's not recognized. Mm-hmm. It's there, it's there all the time. Uh, it's just that. Um, Would you describe it as maybe perhaps the form, the form of experience into which all of the particulars are, are put? It's, it's more like the mind is just distracted from recognizing <laughs> things as they are. Mm-hmm more like that. It's more like just distraction. Um, and the, the various techniques of meditation are basically ways to remove the noise, this noise in the mind, this distraction, um, so that, uh, uh, you can see things as they are. So it's not, it's not, it's not in any way an altered state. Um, in that way, it's it's different from the psychedelic experience. So people that have a psychedelic experience, they would you know have this experience of oneness, um, and it, it would remain sort of a pleasant memory, right? I had this experience of oneness; it was great. Um, where did it go? Mm-hmm. Right? I, I remember it; it was wonderful. Where where is that now? Um, so in Zen. 
uh, it's sort of moment to moment recognition of just just a recognition of this is this is the way things are, basically. Now, how can you say this in neurobiological terms? Um, so one way I like to think about it is what's called the default, you know, about the default mode. Okay. Yes. Let's, let's describe that for people though. What is, what is that? So it's, it's, it's basically the way the brain works. I won't say the mind, I'll distinguish the mind from the brain. It's the way that it's the way the brain works. So the brain basically has, uh, things that turn around sort of. under their own, seemingly under their own, without any um, external force. Um, and a lot of this is experienced as chatter in the mind. So um, when you're sitting down, uh, you know, listening to music or something, you're not only listening to music, there are thoughts basically going through your head, right? Mm -hmm. This is the default, to a great extent, this is the default network. It, it just, it's churning all the time. Part of the practice of what part, what, what meditative practices do is they, and one of the reasons the default network continues is that our attention is shifted to it, okay? So if we didn't, if we, if we didn't reflexively shift our attention to the thoughts, they um, would run out of steam. They run out of steam, basically. Yeah. They don't it's disappear worse. entirely, but um, you you then recognize the sort of silence between the thoughts. Mm -hmm. That's sort of one way of looking at it. And the silence is the natural state of the mind. Is this silence, this luminous, what you call luminous, what one could call luminous awareness. Um, now that's not Kensho or Satori or enlightenment, but that um, to recognize that silence is, is an initial first step. Um, so, so that's what happens basically. So that's why I say it's, it's a natural, it's just, it's just things, it's the, it's the way the mind is naturally, but we just don't see it because we're distracted with basically the way that, the way that things work, our mind works. It's continually generating this chatter mm -hmm. in our heads, which we pay attention to. And, and what, um, so on the one hand, this makes sense, but I, I could see how someone would, would hear this and think, well, if this is the natural state and if meditation is good for you, if it's something you should do because it's somehow better to recognize these things that you've just explained to us, why on earth would there be a default mode that has evolved in the brain that is chattering to begin with? Uh, so I don't know. But it seems to be the way things are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I don't, I don't profess to know anything about uh, the way the way the mind is is constructed. 
um, other than to say there must be some evolutionary advantage to having a default network. Um, I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how did you um, get in? How long have you been practicing again? How long have you been doing this? So I actually started meditating when I was probably 16 or so. Um, and, and what was the original impetus for you? Was it just curiosity? Oh, no. So um, sort of a, I don't know if this is a funny story, but um, so uh, my dad heard about transcendental meditation as a way to keep your kids off drugs. (laughs) (laughs) And as I said, it was sort of the tail end of the 60s. And uh, there was this young woman who had uh, spent time with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was the head of Transcendental Meditation and was a Transcendental Meditation teacher in this. And she had come back from wherever she had trained with him, India or whatever, and um, had had set up shop as a meditation teacher. And she had, she had a special deal for families. And uh, so my dad, uh, had all of us take the transcendental meditation course. Hmm. Um, and so I started meditating. I think when I was 16 or 17 did transcendental meditation and it was, it was actually very helpful for me. And what is TM? How does that work? So at- it's, it's, um, it's what's called a mantra practice, um, where you, instead of focusing on the breath or a koan, you focus on a sound basically. So um, one, one mant- this is not sort of a TM mantra, but one mantra might be the word OM. Mm-hmm. So you focus on the word OM. So they basically give you a, a, a word that you focus your, your attention on. And the practice is, is basically like every meditative practice. You focus on the word. And then when your, your mind wanders away from the word, you basically bring your attention back to the word. And the mind steadily gets quieter and quieter. Um, And, you know, it was interesting when I, when I took TM, they said the goal of TM was cosmic consciousness. They didn't explain what cosmic consciousness was or even why that might be something you would want to have. (laughs) But it was, it was very helpful for me Decreased my anxiety. I, I think I got along better with people and helped me focus. Um, so I practiced TM for a number of years. And uh, when I got to medical school for various reasons, quit, quit practicing TM. Uh, and uh, then when I was finishing up my psychiatry training uh, at Stanford, I, I took up Zen. And I've, I've been basically doing it ever since. And how did that get started? You, you mentioned uh, having a teacher and needing a teacher. How does one yeah. actually go about finding someone to help with that? Well, so I went to the Yellow Pages. And uh, <laughs> now maybe we should explain the Yellow Pages. <laughs> yeah, we just go to the network, go to the net, and uh, go to Google Maps and type in meditation teacher. And, you know, most yeah. any place you are, you'll find some. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was in Cleveland at the time, 
And I'd sort of taught, begun teaching myself Zen, but I realized I, you know, it'd probably be a good idea to, to learn about it in a more formal way. And I had, I had this book, uh, sort of a famous Zen book called The Three Pillars of Zen. And at the back, it said, uh, for further information, contact the Rochester Zen Center. So Rochester was, you know, probably 200 miles away from Cleveland. So I called them up on the phone and I said, I want to learn about Zen. And they said, okay, why don't you come to an introductory workshop and you, we can teach you about Zen. So I, I went, basically. It cost, uh, was I think it would cost $75 for two, it was a two-day workshop. You got free meals and free free room and board basically for 75 bucks. So it was, it was a good deal. Uh, <laughs> that was, that was actually a good sign. They didn't charge me a thousand dollars for two days, 75 bucks. Um, and, you know, I met the teacher and, you know, then started, started practicing basically. And so you said that the, the stated goal for TM was cosmic consciousness. You talked earlier about this form of non-dual awareness, right? Is it accurate to say that what you're describing there is a form of conscious awareness in which your brain's construction of a self of a, of a model of itself is somehow gone, but awareness is retained. Um, I, I wouldn't say that. Um, so, uh, I think what um, what's commonly described in the literature is that one sees through the illusion of a separate self. So, uh, if you read accounts of, of people who have, you know, quote unquote, who have been who are deeply enlightened, um, they would say that um, the illusion. So, they recognize the illusion of the separate self, basically. That's what they would say. Delusion is still there, okay? Um, uh, and at the same time, uh, uh, the awareness of the non-dual nature of, of, of reality is there simultaneously is what probably what they would say. Gotcha, so those are two different things. This recognition of the apps, the illusion of a self and this non-dual awareness, those are separate but related? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. They would, they would say it occurs simultaneously. I see. So, so they would say, they would say, um, so there's this sort of classic Zen saying, uh, before enlightenment, mountains were mountains and rivers and were rivers. Um, when enlightened, mountains are no longer mountains, rivers are no longer rivers. And after enlightenment, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. That's what they would say. If that make, I don't know if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> I suspect that it will be puzzling to a lot of people. <laughs> so, what they, so what I would say is that things are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Nothing changes. Um, just the 
uh, how can I say it? Um, just the mistaken uh, uh, belief in separation is gone. <laughs> and how how would um you know having having sort of gone that through any, the, that make any sense at all it's probably just goop, gobbledygook i'm sorry well, i think i think for a lot of people where you start to get hung up is they've this sort of mistaken perception as you described it they've never experienced it right so it's like a negative it's like trying to imagine a negative when you've never you've never actually experienced the absence of this thing that's always been there yeah yeah. Although I would say you do all the time and um, maybe you just don't notice it. So, you know, when you see a beautiful sunset or. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Anytime that you're quote unquote lost in the moment or fully yeah. engaged. Yeah. 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 You're not thinking I'm sitting here, I'm doing this. You're, you know, you're, you're making the, the jump shot in the championship game. You're fully right. engaged in the act. Right. Or you're eating a, a marvelous nacho. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the point being that you can, you can achieve the same state that you might more readily associate with the, you know, the high octane peak experience. You can also have that exact same type of framing for the, the mundane everyday experience of eating a nacho. Right. <laughs> do you ever, uh, do you ever miss a day? Do you ever, you know, you're, you're in the middle of the week, you've yeah. got a big DARPA meeting coming up. Do you ever miss your meditation session? No, I don't. Um, with a couple of exceptions, there have been, have been times when, uh, you know, like I've, I've been on a plane for 24 hours, <laughs> <laughs> literally. So I'll, I'll, I'll meditate in the seat, basically, um, mm -hmm. of the plane. Um, but no, I, I, um, I don't think there have been, been any days where I have completely missed meditation entirely um, in 30 years, maybe once or twice, basically, because I was awake all night and, you know, couldn't, couldn't formally meditate the next day. Wow. Um, it's, uh, you know, I just naturally wake up at, you know, three or four, sometimes earlier, sadly. And, and, you know, I have nothing other to do, nothing better to do. So I meditate basically, hmm. um, rather than, you know, other, I guess, other things I could do at that time of night. Um, so yeah, I don't, um, I would say if nothing else, my practice has been regular, you know, I can't say that it's been, you know, particularly productive, but at least I, I put in the hours, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> if nothing else, <laughs> I'm not particularly good as a meditator, but I, I do practice. <laughs> what is that? Well, can, what is, what exactly does that mean to not be good at it? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just being funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, anytime. So in meditation, anytime the attention wanders, you know, which will, um, I guess, unless you were the Buddha himself or, you know, 
some greatly enlightened being, some mythical enlightened being, your, your attention is always, is eventually going to wander. And it's always, you know, wrecking basically the, the act of meditation is really the simplest part of it is, oh, my mind wandered. Let's, you know, just make that movement. It's that, just that recognition. Uh, and that, you know, that's a moment to moment. That's always something, something you're practicing because the nature of the mind is to sort of wander off. Um, Interesting. Do you follow the literature at all on meditation, like the neuroscience of meditation? I do not. Interesting. Yeah. I have no, absolutely. People have asked me that before. I've had no curiosity about it at all. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. It seems to work for me. I'm, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> Interesting. Well, as we wind down, Brian, maybe I'll just ask you one or two more questions. Sure. Um, what are you What are you most excited about the next one, two, three years in terms of uh, questions that you think might get answered by the work in your lab? So, uh, I the thing the thing. So I, you know, for better or worse, I don't think that way. Um, you know, I've always had this, this deep interest in psychedelic drug action. Um, but what gets me most excited in the lab is basically the, the latest data, which is unexpected. Um, so I have a big lab and, you know, people are working hard and, and almost every lab meeting, somebody has something which I get excited about that I, you know, wow, that's cool. Um, and, uh, you so know, you're just I, always looking forward to the next surprise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've had some pretty intriguing thing, you know, I, sadly, I can't talk about it cause it's not, we haven't written it up yet, but just some, I have this amazing group of postdocs and students and, uh, professional people in the lab. And um, every week there's just something that's just really amazing that uh, it's like, wow, I never would have guessed that. Hmm. Um, so I'm just, I'm just, you know, I don't wait for it and mm -hmm. I don't, I don't really think about it, but that's what, that's what gets me excited is like new data. Well, Brian, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We just yeah. talked for almost two hours. Okay. And I got another meeting here. And we covered a lot. So thanks again, uh, Brian yep. Roth from the University of North Carolina. Any any final comments you want to share? Uh, no. Um, I always like to thank the funding agencies, the NIH and DARPA, your tax dollars at work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I'd like to thank everybody uh, for that. Um, it you know, it really is, we, we, we can't do it without government support. It's, it's so essential. And, you know, there are many things about our society, which, um, you know, sadly, we, 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 that are problematic, but one of the, one of the really wonderful things about uh, the society as it is today is that they support basic science. And, um, 
you know, without that, we wouldn't wouldn't have things like the vaccine for COVID-19 and, and hopefully we'll have better medications here before too long. Uh, so I just, just like to thank everybody for that. And thank you for your time as well. So. Thanks, Brian. Okay, bye. <laughs>